Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Mic check, mic check. I'm sitting in a squeaky chair in a dirty office here in Iowa. It is 9.30 at night and I am just finally getting to start working on, uh, you know, on, on my actual job, which blows my mind. So today has been a day of, uh, I, did, I guess I did do a little work this morning. Uh, then I had to mow the yard before it rained because it was already out of control. Uh, I had to uh, coach football tonight. I had to uh, do the whole parent thing. I had to, what else did I do? I, I went to the gym. I, I found a little me time and I went to the gym. And uh, the older I get, the more I love the gym. Uh, I don't know. It is a place for me to escape. It is a place for me to only really worry about one thing. You know, when you're lifting heavy things, and I'm not saying I lift a a ton, but uh, I I try to lift as heavy as possible, given the fact I have shitty knees and shitty shoulders and shitty spinal cord. (laughs) Uh, uh, It's a... Dude, I just love, I love it because it clears your brain, gets your heart rate up, makes you sweaty, makes you tired, and you feel good after you do it. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a gym guy, a meathead, so to speak. Um, what else was I going to say? Today's actually, let me, let me get to the point here. Today's episode's really good. Uh, we're talking with Eric Lance of the Hunt Science Podcast. Now, he is a wildlife biologist, and... A majority of the conversation today revolves around how to become a wildlife biologist. The schooling that you have to go go through, the career choices after college, once you do get a wildlife biology degree, and then specialties such as, you know, fish or water or whitetails or turkeys or whatever, whatever your specialty may be. Uh, I'll, I'll say this, that back in the day, I thought that it would be cool to be some kind of wildlife biologist to work for the Department of Natural Resources. Uh, I, I grew up with, my father used to take us to these little conservation offices uh, all the time throughout the entire eastern state of Iowa. And every, in, here in Iowa, every county has its own little conservation uh, board or conservation commission. And, and so usually you go into one of those, the, their main offices and they have like deer antlers and, and snake skins and pelts of beavers and things like that. And I got to talk with some wildlife biologists and I thought what they did was really cool. And so another thing that we talk about on today's episode is the myths, you know, like people think you're out there trapping animals and testing them and collaring them and doing which I'm sure that's a part of it 
But at the same time, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of research uh, and uh, planning and preparation that uh, you do from a desk. So there's that side of it as well. And Eric breaks all that down for us today. It's a, it's a fun episode. Uh, let's see here. I want to do a little housekeeping quick. If you are not a member of the email list, the email list that goes out every month, I'm going to probably go month for a couple months and then uh, send it weekly with updates to all the, the cool things, the exciting episodes that happened in the previous week on, on the network. And so go to the Sportsman's Empire website and enter your email address to sign up for the newsletter. And go to iTunes, leave a five-star review, let everybody know that the Nine Finger Chronicles and the Sportsman's Empire is awesome and that you love the content that's uh, being put out. And then uh, follow on Instagram. I don't know how good Instagram is or what it does, but I hope that, you know, I hope I hope it's, it's doing something, right? And I know I'm not growing uh, on there. I feel like I'm, I'm shadow banned but because of the content that I put out. And so it's a little frustrating to say the least, but if you could go in there, comment, let, uh, let me know that you've seen it and that you're, you're, uh, you're enjoying it, the content that's being put out, that would be awesome. Uh, la, 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 la. Let's do some commercials, right? These are, these are important because they pay my bills, right? The content is free, and the only thing you got to do is listen to some commercials throughout the beginning of the podcast and uh, in, and throughout the podcast itself, like one one every 10 minutes, right? So I think in the main part of the in the main part of the episode, I'm only trying to do like one one commercial every every 10 minutes. And so I feel like that is that's that's about the same as radio or TV or any other uh, form of you know advertising out there. The goal isn't to like pour it out all the way. Uh, I don't want to do that. I, I want it to have a good decent flow. I try to put the commercials in the places that have like good conversation breaks. Listen to a 30 second commercial and then and then go. So. Uh, uh, if you are an advertiser, you own a company, you know, hit me up through the, uh, the, the form on the Sportsman's Empire page or reach out to me through Instagram or email and uh, you can definitely, we can definitely have a conversation. But commercials now, okay. If you're looking for a saddle, you got to check out Tethered. Tethered not only has the saddles, the platforms, the climbing sticks, the saddle hunting accessories, uh, and a variety of different, you know, as far as the saddles are concerned, they have a variety of options there as well. But they also have a community of people that would love to help you uh, become better at saddle hunting become more informed and that's one that's one reason i like working with tethered is because of the community that they've built and uh, some of the people who use their products and are in that community are some of the best in my opinion deer hunters on the planet period so uh, huge shout out to tethered go check out tetherednation.com uh, wasparchery.com again they are the the metallica the master of puppets in my opinion of broadheads 
and a huge fan of the design, huge fan of the materials that they use. It's, it's the best. A majority of their heads are made in America, so you combine all those things and you get something that causes a lot of destruction on whatever it hits. And when that's the lungs and vitals and even marginal shots like in the guts, that's going to do a lot of damage. So uh, go check out wasparchery.com. I do have a discount code, NFC20, NFC20, and uh, that's going to get you 20% off. Vortex Optics, man, it is, it's time to start thinking about Western hunts. Now I'm starting to plan my Western hunts, and uh, I'm starting to think about the optics that I need. Uh, my spotting scope. Uh, I got a new pair of binoculars coming. I think they're going to send me some new binoculars here pretty soon. Uh, I'll tell you more about those in June. But there's a lot of like every optic that you could need. Vortex has as far as hunters, spotting scopes, binoculars, range finders, red dots, rifle scopes. Uh, the best part is their VIP warranty. Right, this is an, it's a no-brainer. If you break it, smash it, kick it, you know, cheat on it. I don't know. Like you send it in, they fix it for free and then send it back to you. I have a pair of old Vortex binoculars downstairs that I'm actually going to document. I'm going to film the whole thing on my phone. I'm going to film myself talking with their customer service and then I'm going to turn it into a short video and let you see how easy it is to uh, to do the whole uh, to do the whole VIP warranty. So go check that out vortexoptics.com. Hunt stand, my friends, hunt stand. Uh, let's see, HuntStand is one of the most popular hunting apps for a reason, and it's because of the functionality they have. Uh, the functionality, I mean, there's so many different things you can do. Here's how I use it. I use it to journal and document everything that I see in the woods, and I then later reference that uh, before hunts, during the off-season, during the season, while I'm documenting, and, and I put together a plan all the information that I've gathered on how to approach a said hunt, wind direction, satellite imagery, access routes, you name it. I, I, I think and plan it all through HuntStand. They also have a new upgrade, the Pro Whitetail platform, and that allows you to do a whole bunch of really cool things. I strongly suggest going to HuntStand.com, reading up on all this functionality, and then uh, download it for free and then you know upgrade as necessary so uh huntstand.com go check it out last but not least the woodman's pal this is uh an actual machete it is a habitat tool you know chopping down uh, like bushes hacking shooting lanes clearing poison ivy out of the way maybe you need to um you know, uh, chop some, chop some limbs down when you're doing your mobile, you know, your mobile style hunting. I can definitely see this being a tool that I leave in my truck at all times. So just in case I need something, I have it right there with me. Uh, hacking, uh, you know, as the summer starts to uh, move move on and we get taller grass. You know, sometimes the the mineral stations that I have. Uh, branches come down tree like grass comes up I would will use that this uh, woodman's pal to uh, hack away all of those problems and uh, get it get it cleaned up so it's an American-made product it since 1941 so it, it's a uh, it's an old product man I mean these guys have been around for a very long time and uh, it's 
it, it's a no-brainer to work with these guys just be, from the Made in America aspect uh, and uh, the functionality of this of this of this tool. So go check it out, woodmanspal.com and uh, woodmanspal.com and uh, check out their machete and some of the other products that they have. It's pretty cool. And those are the commercials for today. Huge shout out to all the partners uh, of the podcast. Huge shout out to all of you. Uh, Enjoy this episode and we will talk to you on the back end. Three, two, one. All right. On the phone with me today, Mr. Eric Lance of Hunt Science. Eric, what's up, dude? Hey, Dan. Good, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. Uh, I'll have to admit, the first time you kind of reached out to me, I thought it was an old buddy from high school, uh, a, a guy I know, his older brother. So the the guy I know, he's a big hunter. He's a he's a couple years uh, younger than me, and then his brother's his oldest brother was a couple years uh, older than me. And I'm like, why is this dude reaching out to me? Like I don't like I don't, I didn't know. So but same name, different person. Oh, okay. There you go. That was a dumb story. Anyway, welcome. <laughs> well, hey, man. Welcome to the no show. No problem. Hey, thanks. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate right. it. Right. Yeah, I get that. I get that all the time, man. Even around here, you know, people always they'll look at me and be like, "Man, you look like this guy's brother." I know. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. I'm sure everyone looks like someone. Yeah. That they, I'm like, all right. See, I, I've never talked to you before in my life. And some of the store will turn around and be like, "Oh, man." like all right cool well it's better i guess that's better than uh one of the alternatives like hey man you remind me of this this serial killer documentary uh that i that i watched so i guess that that's better than that um where do you live so i'm in northeast ohio northeast ohio lifelong resident so i'm I'm about an depending on where you are in, in the cleveland area uh, on average, I'm probably about an hour southeast, south southeast of Cleveland. I'm about 20 minutes from Youngstown, so I'm in that northeast Ohio pocket in Trouble County, and pretty close to the Pennsylvania border. Gotcha. Are you a Browns fan? I am. You are. Uh, I, I am, re- re- regrettably. Okay. Sometimes. Okay. <laughs> so, if there's anyone out there who knows how I feel, so I don't necessarily, I'm not passionate about uh, the NFL. Uh, and and the team that I like, like I am, uh, I the University of Iowa say, Athletics. You, you guys in Iowa, you're wearing it right there. Yep. You're wearing your guys's pro team. Yep, Iowa. Uh, any type of Iowa athletics, whether that's basketball or football, you know, I I just you know I gravitate towards uh, football and wrestling. Anyway, um, my the pro team that I've chose uh, to follow over the years is the Raiders. Okay. There's not a lot of guys in the Midwest who follow the no. Raiders. It's a very niche market. Most of the people that I know who follow them are, or are out of California. But the reason that I started liking the uh, Raiders was because they drafted Bo Jackson back when they were oh, in, yeah. L- in LA. And so Bo Jackson was like my hands down favorite athlete of all time. Oh, uh, he's one of mine too. Yeah. Yeah. And so I started following him. Long story short, what I'm getting at here is if there is another team out there who feels the frustration that I feel on any given year, it's gotta be the Browns. Oh my God. It, it's so I, I was a big athlete growing up. I played college baseball and stuff. So I, I love sports and you know, I'm not, I'm not as die hard about pro sports. I mean, I enjoy watching it. My cousin, who is like my brother, I mean, he's a die hard NFL guy. So, I mean, we get together and watch games and stuff. I mean, he's a Steelers fan, so it gets a little bit weird. But, um, yeah, man, the frustrations, it, it's just 
I don't even know. It's just you're just been in it for so long. Right. You're like it's just what you expect, you know. But yeah, yeah they're yeah the Raiders, man. Hey, they're they're not a bad team, you know. Yeah. But I, I say that every year about us. I mean, on paper, the Browns should be one of the best damn teams in the NFL. But you know, <laughs> that's just don't get me started. You got you got uh, old Johnny Manziel came through a while ago, and um, they thought he was going to yeah. be the savior. And then uh, who was the uh, guy from Oklahoma that uh, that Oh, just the last couple of years, who was the quarterback for the oh, Browns? Oh, oh my God! I don't no, know why the name Shooter McGavin came up. That's not no. him. That's not him. Uh, oh my God! You know who I'm? You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, right? I know you. I know you're talking about. This is I a brain think, fart. Brian. I mean, it's Brian Hoyer, and then Hoyer was uh, the guy before. Uh, like the guy that just like three years ago was the starting quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. I, I'm drawing a blank. You're putting anyway, me on the spot. Anyway, the he, he, this is stupid. Yeah. Anyway, he's the he's the old quarterback. They thought he I'm was going to be the savior. He had a he had a he had the Johnny Menzel type vibe, but he was better, and he had he didn't do cocaine. So, <laughs> <laughs> dude, it's going to look me. So I so I know so I know, we have Deshaun Watson now. Jacoby Brissett last year. Manziel is Manziel and Hoyer. Let's see, Couch, Josh McCown. I think, are you, this Brady, is just Brady. Brady okay. Quinn was a Notre Dame guy. Hey Google, it, it's bugging me now. Colt Oklahoma McCoy. quarterback that played for the Cleveland Browns. Oh, Baker Brady. Mayfield. Baker Mayfield. Oh, oh geez. Oh my. How, how did we not yeah. know that? I rambled everybody. I, I I completely forgot about him. Yeah. Completely forgot about him. Yeah. That's how influential he was. Yeah. You know, I and I liked Baker <laughs> in the beginning. I, it's turned into a Browns podcast. I liked Baker in the beginning. I thought he was doing good, but it just was so. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it just was not what we needed. Yeah. The only, <laughs> I'm not even. The only other per, uh, people that I can that you could probably relate to are the Chicago Cubs fans where they have flashes oh. of greatness. And then in a hundred, you know, it takes a hundred years for them to get back to the top. So yep, I used to like the Cubs until they beat my Indians. There you go. In the world series. There so you go. They can kiss off. <laughs> okay. Um, you are a wildlife biologist, right? How does one become a wildlife biologist? I mean, is this something where you're playing, in the dirt and the sandbox. And you're like, when I grow up, I want to be a wildlife biologist. How did that, how did that start? So, yeah. So my path to doing this kind of work was not your traditional one. So I knew as a young age, I was always fascinated with wildlife nature. You know, I would go out, my grandparents had a, a house at a campground, our church campground, very large acreage, huge pond, big sets of woods, you know, timber all over the place. My grandparents were one of the only year long residents out there. So, you know, growing up, I was, uh, I have a sister. She's nine years older than me. But I mean, growing up, I was basically the only child in the house. I mean, when I'm 10 years old, my sister's 19 and she was, she was moved out. So, you know, I still very close with my family and my sister, but I mean, that's just a reality. So I didn't have any brothers. My two cousins were close in age and we were really, really close. They were like my brothers. So we would go out to the grandparents' house and catch frogs and turtles and fish and that kind of stuff. And I did not grow up in a hunting family. You know, I, I just did it. I had an uncle. People listen to my podcast. I had an uncle that hunts, but I'm not close by any stretch of the imagination. It wasn't yeah. even something that I would even ask to take me hunting. 
you know, but we did fish a lot. My dad fished, my grandpa fished, you know, and we just had poles access to us and we just figured it out, you know, type yeah. of thing. So I always loved being outside, you know, but I, like I said, I was also an athlete. So I was always either playing sports or I was outside. So, you know, on Sundays, my dad and I would watch the old Marty Stauffer, you know, animal documentaries yep. before church and stuff like that. I had, you know, a subscription to zoo books and I just, I just liked nature and I liked animals. Yeah. So going through high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I was getting – in my head, I was still going to go play professional baseball. You know, I, I, I played college baseball, but in my head, I'm like, screw the school stuff. Yeah. You know, but anyway, I was like, I got to pick something. So I, I chose the biology route. You know, I was really interested in science, you know, because in biology, I mean, we talk about organisms a lot. So for me, I, I kind of found a, a strong interest in anatomy and physiology and those kind of things. So actually, when I got to college, I, I majored in biology. But I wanted to be a veterinarian, you know, okay. to be honest with you. I, I kind of fell in love with medicine. Still to this day, I do. I spent a long time in veterinary medicine, um, you know, so I went that route for a little bit before. I wanted to be a wildlife vet is what I wanted to do. If you could ask me, like, what's your dream job? I work for a park service, work as a state veterinarian, doing, you know, herd health checks and, and that kind of thing. That's what I wanted to do. Um, you know, but that, you know, quickly changed when I started working and doing some conservation work. Okay. I was like, okay, this is something that I really, really enjoy. And, and, and all of my undergraduate training, everything was really emphasizing, you know, molecular biology, you know, biochemistry, you know, all those different types of things, getting ready for medical school, basically. So, but I also had electives. I knew I wanted to be a wildlife guy. So I'm like, okay, the electives at the university, I was taking ornithology, I was taking mammalogy, I was taking wildlife resources, you know, forestry and soils class, because I also had an interest in those classes as well. So, you know, fast forward, you know, I, I decided and changed that I wanted to work with wildlife. And I really started meeting more wildlife biologists. I have, you know, had a degree in biology. I was doing, you know, I had the, the stuff to, to do it. So when grad school came around, I made the shift and decided to go into uh, the natural resources program at Virginia Tech. Um, I was do going to do the a, a wildlife degree, but at the time of entering that program, I was talking with someone who was a, a consultant and they were like, listen, I'm just going to say, if you go down the path of being a wildlife biologist, those jobs are far and few between unless you want to move and, and you're going to start and you're going to have to climb the ladder in most cases. They're like, just my opinion, you know, and my dad would, would chime in and he always said, make yourself as marketable as possible. So as someone who teaches at a university now and for people that are listening to this, and if this is something you want to pursue, I tell my students the same thing is going into the world of science um, you want to make yourself as marketable as possible and, and, and give yourself as much tools in the toolbox as you can. So for me, I looked at the coursework as in the natural resource program and the things that I would be doing. And I was like, this fits along the lines of where I see my career going as a consultant. I was taking, you know, wetland classes. I was taking, you know, aquatic ecology classes. I was taking macro invertebrate zoology classes and wildlife classes and all this other stuff. So, you know, I finished that degree. And then, you know, I've been working in the field for 15 years, you know, doing just massive amounts of wildlife work because I'm interested in it as well as other things. And then, you know, I got my certification as a certified wildlife biologist through uh, the Wildlife Society, which is the governing organization for that. So my path was not your typical path of, hey, man, I knew I've hunted my whole life. I want to work with deer. I go to Mississippi State and get a degree in wildlife, you know, or Georgia or the big wildlife schools. 
that wasn't my path. My path was I ran into someone luckily doing the work that I ultimately do today. Okay. And so what, what kind of steps does it take to become a wildlife biologist? Is this because, you know, a lot of what I hear is, uh, especially when you get into the conservation, the Department of Natural Resources, things like that, um, you hear, number one, it takes forever because these are lifelong jobs. People, you know, like a conservation officer in a county, he's there until he retires for the most part. And then someone else has to step in or there's a line and someone else has to step in or die. Yeah. Or whatever. (laughs) And and that seems to be kind of the same path in any type of, uh, state or federal conservation or, um, a department of natural resources type role. Now, what, what type of steps did you have to go through? And the reason I'm asking this question is because I think, people get the idea in their head that when they talk about positions and careers like this, that it's this, Hey, I'm going to be out actually exploring. I'm going to be doing, uh, um, national geographic type work, (laughs) you know, where I'm, I'm tagging walruses and I'm, I'm taking blood samples from, you know, a caribou and I'm doing all these crazy, like remarkable things. Is that the case? No, it's not at all. So, so I will say that, you know, if you want to, if someone wants to choose a career as a wildlife biologist, you have to understand that there's two main routes and, and well, I'll, I'll say three. Okay. The two main ones are either in academics. Okay. Doing research or like you alluded to, you're going to be working with a state or federal agency, you know, period. Now you can have, you, you have, and you, you know, them just as well as I do, you know, the private consultants that focus on wildlife, but that's a very hard living. And in the world today with how saturated the, the hunting world is and how many, you know, keyboard experts and stuff that there are, it, it just, and there, and there's really good managers out there. Don't get me wrong, but they are far and few between. And it, it's going to be a very hard go. Oh, excuse me. It's going to be a very hard go at it. If you try to do that by yourself. And if you're going to try to do that by yourself, there's going to be a lot more investment because you're going to need to be able to do the implementation of the management plans as well, which means excavating equipment, which means, you know, being able to put food plots in and doing timber stand improvements and, and being able to do that. Now that would be my recommendation. Of course, you got guys out there, you know, like Jeff and and, and all these other big guys that are out there, you know, where I'm going with this, you're in the media world. It's a hard thing to get into. So I generally say that is an option go the private route. And there are a lot of people that do a great job at it. And that, that sounds to me, what you've just described is more of like a, a habitat management specialist. Exactly. And not a wildlife biologist. Yeah. But there are wildlife biologists that have private companies as well. Okay. You know, it's, but it's in different parts of the country in Ohio. Good luck. Okay. There are other States that do a lot better job of, of offering incentives for wildlife management to where landowners are more, um, uh, readily, you know, uh, accessible to do it, right? They, they want to do it. They're incentivized to do it. In Northeast Ohio, we're not getting a whole lot of people that really want to manage your property because a lot of the reasons we could spend a whole episode on. But going down that path is, like I said, you're primarily going to be either with a state or federal agency or in academics. First step, you got to get a college degree. You have to have a four-year degree or a two-year degree. So here in Ohio, mo- uh, I would say a vast majority of our biologists in the state of Ohio 
um, all started at Hawking College, which is a, a two-year technical associate's degree in wildlife. I think wildlife and fishery science, I think, is the actual name of it. Um, and that's kind of a stepping stone into the Division of Wildlife with the state of Ohio. Now, is that a, is that a, a must-have? No, but that they do have some type of relationship, I think, to with the program. Just like when I was pursuing veterinary medicine, I almost looked at going to the University of Finley because they had a partnership with Ohio State University's vet school that if you went to University of Finley, you had a far better chance of getting accepted into the veterinary school. So a lot of whatever, you know, a lot of uh, those, those state biologists go through, you know, that Hawking College. Not always the case, but a, a vast majority of them do. And then they go on to get four-year degrees, you know, from there. So, you know, that's the pathway is some type of a degree. They're a two-year technical degree. Um, typically, you're probably going to be at a technician level and work your way up, you know, to a biologist level. Or at the very least, you have to have a four-year bachelor's in some type of natural resource-related field, whether it's biology, natural resources, conservation science, you know, those types of things. Gotcha. Okay, so you, you've briefly discussed about that there's a private option for this. You know, yeah. you can go private and you can do, you know, the the, the habitat management type route, the media route, whatever. Um, but you go through the training. You go through the schooling, you get the degree, and if you choose not to go the private route, what options are there for someone with a wildlife biology type degree? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, academics, you know, going for the state. So, like, for my students, I always get them involved to say, hey, you know, get an account with USA Jobs, get on LinkedIn, you know, to look at what type of positions are out there. And, and you've got to be careful with that, you know, because a lot of positions will, will say, you know, wildlife biologist. But if you start looking at the descriptions and I've only I've been doing this long enough, I, I can tell by the job posting, like what they're doing. But a lot of times they might be dealing with some aspect of threatened and endangered species. Mm -hmm. Right. And, they, and they're trying to draw people and say, hey, we need a wildlife biologist. When in reality unless you're federally permitted, you know, through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to handle some of these threatened and endangered species, you're not doing a whole lot of work in that. It's a way to get people to apply to do wetland work and things like that, which is great work, don't get me wrong, but it, it can be a little bit misleading. So when you look at the state agencies, ODNR, for example, the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they will post those jobs. They're looking for a regional biologist. They're looking for a deer biologist. They're looking for an elk biologist or an upland game bird biologist or uh, like a general wildlife biologist. And, and those ones are more credible as far as what exactly a wildlife biologist is going to be doing. And you can tell that in the description. You know, so someone who graduates with a degree, whether it's in wildlife science, conservation, that that's generally the route a lot of students go or they go into the consulting world like I did in the beginning to where you're not really doing a whole lot of wildlife stuff. However, during that training, you get access and information and experience and a lot of other things that are still useful in the private consulting world for an env environmental firm, an engineering firm that's doing, you know, the environmental permitting type of thing. So, you know, that's generally what happens. I know quite a few people that went to school for wildlife science and they work for an engineering department, make, you know, really good money doing what they do. And it's not exactly what they wanted to do, but, you know, it's, it's something they enjoy doing. Yeah. So I would say if you were to put up a, a statistical percentage on it, your highest percentage is either going into work directly for a state agency or pursuing a PhD and going into the academic world and doing research. Okay. All right. So 
are people expected to, or are people with these wildlife biology degrees expected to specialize in something, or does that come after they get their education? Um, I would say, I, I would say a little bit of both. So you have the option. So when you go through grad school, whether it's a master's or a PhD, you have to have a project. And you, with that project, you have to have a, a specialization. So give you an example. So, you know, I'm getting ready to go through my PhD prog- uh, program and I'm going to be dealing with, uh, I'm, I'm doing a big mallard, you know, project. So I've actually had this conversation. You know, I was joking around with some of my buddies and my wife. And I'm like, you know, I've always been a deer guy, an upland game bird guy. That's where my passion and my interest is. I mean, I really, really enjoy waterfowl as well. But it's like once I get my Ph.D. and I do this big waterfowl project, can I really consider myself a deer biologist? Yeah. <laughs> you know, type of thing. So not to say, you know, I don't know anything about it, but that's you know, to answer your question. You can specialize during your training, depending on what your project is. You know, if you look at um, – you know, guys that go through Mississippi State with Bronson or Steve, you know, and they're working at the deer labs. Well, their specialization is going to be working with whitetails or something around the whitetail world, whether it's habitat management or things like that. But it's going to be focused around whitetails. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go through, you know, maybe Craig Harper's program at University of Tennessee, you're going to be a habitat guy and you might do a little bit of things with turkeys and quails and rabbits and, you know, also white-tailed deer. So your specialization is that. So you can have, you know, five or six different individuals going through a wildlife program, but depending on what their product, you might have someone working on box turtles, you know, the Eastern box turtle, right? So it's like, yeah, they got a degree in wildlife, but their, their focus and research was around, you know, reptiles, yeah. you know, type of thing. So going into the state, it just depends on what it is that they're actually looking for. So if they're looking for a regional biologist to represent the region, you're you're probably going to be better off having a wider skill set, having an understanding of upland game bird biology and ecology, you know, deer, mm-hmm. you know, name the species, right? Game species focused for the most part. Um, probably some pollinator habitat experience, more well-rounded. Now, if you're looking for a you know deer program manager, then you want someone who is a specialist in, in, in a deer program. You look at someone like Tonkovich here in Ohio. He's got a PhD from Virginia Tech, you know, where I went to school. He's a deer guy. His programs and projects always revolved around deer that and he moved it. I don't know, I don't know Tonk's uh, complete background. He's actually gonna be on my show and uh, we'll talk more about it then. But you know, that that's where those guys that's mm-hmm. how it happens is you have a waterfowl specialist, a, a buddy of mine, Dan. Uh, Collins, who's a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Migratory Bird Specialist. I mean, that's what he did his projects on. So he's got that wildlife degree, but during your training and during your project that you're researching, you become an expert on that particular species. Now, post-graduation, you know, let's say, hey, after I graduate, I'm like, man, I love waterfowl, right? I love waterfowl, but God, I just love deer. You know, I, I just, I got to keep working with deer. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't mean I can't do it. That doesn't mean I'm still not I might have to maybe catch up on some of the research that's been going on over the past four or five years because my my nose has been in the book, you know, dealing with waterfowl. But it all depends on the individual. So you can go post-graduation, you can specialize. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, as a veterinarian, I, I can say, hey, I'm a general practicing veterinarian. But then, you know what? I want to go back and do some training and I want to focus on, you know, surgery, right, type of thing and go do a residency, things like that. So you you always have that option post-graduation. 
that you can gain that experience to become a, more of an expert in one particular field. Mm -hmm. But most people just get that through their research and then go into a job focusing around that. Not gotcha. always the case, but that's generally what happens. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk specifically then about a, a state agency uh, and, and what does a wildlife biologist actually do uh, as far, you know, like the breakdown, is there a lot of desk time? Is there a lot of paperwork time? Because I've talked to a couple guys here at Iowa and one guy's like, dude, I'm behind a desk almost more than I am out in the field. Uh, but when yeah. I'm out in the field, I'm out in the field. Like I'm out for like three or four weeks and then I come back and I, it's just basically reporting everything that I found and, and things like that. So uh, from your from your standpoint, what does a wildlife biologist from for a state agency, let's say like the Department of Natural Resources, actually do in a given year? Yeah, so now I have to caveat this. I've never worked for them. I've never worked for yeah. a state agency, so I I know a bunch of people that do. So I'll, I'll I'll may not be exact on everything here, but you know from my experience as a wildlife biologist, yes, you you spend a majority of your time is behind a desk writing reports you know, filing for permits, analyzing data that's been collected more than likely by technicians or other individuals, um, you know, and, and there's a lot of that goes. So if you are, you know, the wildlife biologist for a, a particular region, you probably have a team of technicians around you that are out setting up, you know, trail cameras for, for data collection. They're out running, you know, checking uh, uh, wood duck boxes or whatever the project is or that you're focused around. So I would say that it definitely, it, it, you know, if I had to put a number on it, probably, you know, for me right now, I probably would say about 40 to 40 percent of my time is actually in the field. Okay. You know, a lot of it is, you know, with my position, you know, with the people I have working for me, a lot of it is project management related stuff anymore. It's, you know, a technical review of, of, of consulting or excuse me, management plans, permit applications, all that type of thing. But I get out in the field about 40% of the time. Now I would venture to guess that's what most of it is on their end as well. You know, if you got a, a biologist for the state that focuses more on deer, you know, there's going to be components of where they're doing the field research. Like you said, getting data collection, you know, all those different types of things through the habitat assessments. But there's at some point, a vast majority is going to be taking that data that's that's collected and, you know, writing reports, writing, you know, all different types of, of paperwork related things. Um, maybe it's new legislation. Maybe it's working on parts of new legislation. Maybe it's, you know, working on a, a technical report for educational outreach, you know, whatever it is. So there's at the state agency, they have a lot more, uh, angles that they're being pulled against than I am because a lot of state agencies, education is, is a, an outreach is a big part of it. And if you're part of those individuals that work for on the deer population for your state, you're going to have to satisfy some time to the educational piece at legislative piece, the field research data collection, you know, piece, there's a lot of those different things that pull on you, you know, that you have to be associated with as well. So it's not all, like you said, walking through the woods going, okay, let's go catch some deer today, or let's go catch some turkeys and, yeah. you know, do those things that there's, there's seasonal work that's usually done. And then, you know, a lot of the work throughout the year is mainly, like I said, it, it's one of those aspects as far as the state agency goes. And again, never working for a state agency, yeah. but, you know, knowing for the, the people that I do know that work there, you know, there's, there's field work, you know, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of, there's a lot of paperwork as well. Okay. So, Clarify what you do. You, you work in the private sector or, or are you yeah, in so, education? 
Yeah, so I have I do both. So okay. I have I have my own consulting company, and, and my consulting company is basically divided into two categories. We have the environmental side, and we have what's called the ecological side. So on the environmental side, you know, I I realized early on, early on in my consulting career, I was exposed to a lot of different aspects of environmental consulting. Okay, so wetland and stream permitting through the Army Corps of Engineers for you know big utility projects, commercial residential development projects, you name it. Okay, dealing a lot with the EPA permitting with stormwater management, you know, NEPA projects, you know, all these different types of projects in the environmental consulting world. So when you see these big engineering companies and these big environmental consulting companies, that's the side of, of the world that they're dealing with. They're dealing with the EPA, the Army Corps of Engineers, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, doing all of these permit applications and, and field work associated in order for these big projects to to get completed. Yeah. On the other side of things, I do a lot of your private landowner, you know, management because I enjoy doing that. Right. I enjoy working with with people. Um, I'm very fortunate that I don't have to make my entire living doing that. I would be on the road a lot more and, and, and things of that nature. So I'm very fortunate to be in a position to where I can, you know, work with private landowners a lot easier than I would say probably most other consultants because, I don't, I can be a lot more flexible because, I, because of the freedom that I have with mm -hmm. the position that I have. So, um, I can also be more selective, you know, so people reach out to me sometimes, you know, I got to turn people away a little bit because I am busy. You know, I do get a lot of calls. I do get a lot of calls, both from private landowners. I get a lot of calls from, you know, my, my, uh, uh, development clients, my, my utility clients as well. And those projects are multi-year projects, multi-million dollar projects that take a lot of time and a lot of permitting pre-planning before that project actually gets implemented. So my time gets heavily, you know, skewed to that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what my company does in, in a nutshell, but then I also teach at the university. So um, I'm a, I'm an adjunct professor at Kent State University. I teach in the department of biological sciences. I teach the professional, what they call professional courses. So I'll teach forestry, I'll teach wildlife resources, I'll teach a soils class, I'll teach some of those industry-focused, professional-related classes for the upper division students that are getting ready to graduate with either a conservation, biology, or environmental science degree. That way they're getting some experience because not everybody's going to medical school yeah. with a biology degree. Some people don't know what they want to do. They got this conservation degree, it sounded interesting, but they have no idea what they want to do. What if they can't get in with the state agency or, 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 or a federal agency? They're demanding. Everybody wants to work for them, right? So giving them ideas and pathways for the private consulting world to go work in environmental consulting like, you know, we do on that one side because I have that experience. Yeah. yeah. Sounds, number one, sounds like you're busy. as all get out. I, yeah. <laughs> number two, um, I want to talk about what you do for the like in, in the private sector on some of these uh, you, you mentioned permit applications is it required by law that uh certain developers or or people who want to build and expand cities and things like that hire a wildlife biologist to study the impact of what what building on this ground and, and in a specific ecosystem actually what the impacts will be? Yeah. So it's, it's a regulation. It's not a law. Um, so anything that is being in development, there's always a due diligence component to it. So let me give you an example. So if we're doing a, a big utility 
uh, electrical line, like for the power company, right? This might be like a 30 mile line. So what will happen is, is we will go out there as the, as the ecologist, as the environmental scientist, which is what we're typically called because the industry doesn't really say, oh, you're a wildlife biologist. We're environmental scientists is what we are. Okay. You know, they, don't, they don't give a damn if what your degree is in. You're just an environmental guy. You're an environmental tree hugger. You're up there with OSHA Okay. <laughs> as far as how they treat you, man. We're like, you know, it is what it is. It's a necessary but, evil. It, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, so what happens in the due diligence, there's a lot to go into that. Pertain to wildlife, that entire area is surveyed. Okay. First and foremost, doing a desktop review running something through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife's, the IPAC. The IPAC is a tool that you can put your project information in, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife will spit out a list of all of the listed, threatened, and endangered species or even species of concern in those areas. So then what we will do is we'll take that list, and then if it's a lot of my work's in Ohio, so I would take the ODNR's list and compare the two together. So then what we do is now that I have the data, this is the species that we're looking at. If most of it is we can handle, but some stuff we sub out, depending on what comes back on those results, if it's, you know, the upland sandpiper, which is an upland, you know, game bird type bird that, you know, likes grassland, you know, type of habitat areas, I'll look at the, the design for the project and say, okay, looking at desktop review, I've got these fields that are grasslands and we'll walk the entire line and we'll look for habitat for upland sandpiper or you know indiana bat or northern long-eared bat or whatever it is right so just depends on the species there but yes to answer your question there are due diligence uh uh uh, coordination that goes into with the u.s fish and wildlife and the state the the respected state agency where your project is in in order to evaluate those things and if something is identified to where it's going to impact you know something like in our case again just using upland sandpiper if we have a project that's slated to go through that area of grassland, right? We just change it to where it's outside of the nesting and breeding season to where it's no longer going to be an impact, mm-hmm. right? So we'll, we'll, we'll change those timetables around in order to accommodate avoidance mechanisms and things like that to, to disturb any native wildlife. Gotcha. Has there ever been uh, an example of you guys going out into the field reporting back to these big companies, these utility companies or these developers and going, Hey, I'm sorry, but, uh, the impact that your project would have will be too great on the ecosystem. Thus, you're going to have to find another place to do this, or it just is a no-go in this area. Not wildlife related. Um, generally that happens more on the wetland side, you know, because of where things are being built. Um, and with the whole wetland permitting with the Army Corps of Engineers and the EPA and mitigation and stuff like that. So generally on the wildlife side, that's not the case. Um, I don't do any muscle work or anything like that. But when you start talking about very, you know, niched, you know, areas that, that with wildlife, there's always I don't like to use absolutes. There's generally a way gotcha. that you can accomplish the project in a different way. So for my experience, most of my projects are oil and gas, electrical utilities, um, especially oil and gas, we can shift right away, right? We can move right. Now that might take longer and delay a project because now we have to reach out to different landowners to get acquisition, but we can still make, you know, right. the, 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 the changes to avoid what we're doing. Most of the time, that's not, that's not the issue. 
Okay. You know, it's usually other environmental issues that come up that that scrap a project and force it to go back into, you know, redesign. It's yeah. generally not a wildlife thing. Gotcha. Cuz I've uh uh, you know, you hear those stories about, hey, a guy wants to build a hog confinement, uh, you know, and hog, you know, there's a whole bunch of rules. Because back in the long time ago, they just dumped that, the manure yeah. on the on the landscape or they would, you know, drain it into a waterway, God forbid. Yeah, you know, that's the big problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you hear about, you hear about those types of things being put on hold because of the potential impact that would it would have uh, on, on, you know. Uh, I don't know what it was. It was I think there was a law passed a while ago where there was only a cert. They had to change the types of fertilizer that they would use on ag fields because it was seeping into the water system, thus impacting the fish, thus impacting the eagles, the bald eagles that were eating yeah. the fish because they they're they were having stillborn eggs or they were having some kind of issues with their reproductive system and it was messing everything up and they did the research. The research led back to fertilizer. And so yeah. I'm not a hundred percent how that, how that all. Yeah. So out. that, that's a big problem, especially with the agricultural industry and especially being in the Midwest and you yeah. being in Iowa, I mean, you, you know, yep. just as well as anybody, you know, the use of fertilizer, synthetic fertilizers and, and chemicals and things, pesticides, that's a big problem. And, and when you look at farm fields, especially, you know, here, there's drain tiles, right? That stuff goes on the ground. I mean, nothing is done without consequence, right? The stuff doesn't just magically go away. You know, there's, there's, you know, groundwater aspects that we need to take into account and there's drainages and soil types and all these different types of things, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of negative it, things have gotten a lot better over the, you know, right past 20, 30 years. But back in the day, I mean, this stuff was just getting dumped. No one really cared. And, and, you know, look at, I always relate to like storm drains, mm -hmm. right? I tell people like go to a Walmart parking lot or some type of parking lot and, and walk around and tell me you're not going to see oil sheen from a, from, you know, something on there or whatever. That stuff goes right to that storm drain. No one thinks anything about it. That goes directly to a strip, a, a tributary, a stream or yeah. a local stream. It's not treated, you know? So a lot of people, it's out of state, out of mind, but guys like me are wading through the the rivers, you know, up in Cuyahoga County or whatever, doing cleanups. And, and, you know, there's, there's all this, I'm not even going to tell you some of the stuff we found floating down in there, but these, the, the, the bio, biological quality of these streams, you know, for the longest time were really poor and, you know, the Cleveland Metro parks and, and, and other associated agencies have done a great job cleaning those things up, but that happens all over the country you know, is that you've got these tributaries that are the collection points for our negligence, you know, up in these other areas, whether it's salt on the roads because of, you know, uh, you know, snow and ice conditions, it's, you know, fertilizers from agriculture fields or whatever it is. It's, you know, the stuff in the parking lots of impervious surfaces that stormwater captures and transverses across the, the areas. All that stuff has consequence in it. And yeah. usually that consequence is our water quality. And that's going to have a cascading event for other species as well. Guys like you and I that enjoy fishing, whether it's a trout stream or something like that, that that's impacted, right? Yeah. And it's whether it's fishing Lake Erie, you're right? That's it. you're impacted mm -hmm. by algal blooms and things like that. It's a hundred percent related to what our land activities are across the landscape, you know. And that's and that's where it is. Most people don't see it. Guys like I, you know, going out there and other side field scientists like me that work on that kind of stuff, we see the outfalls after a rain event. We yeah. see the shit coming out of there, right? We see the fish kills. We see the algal blooms. We see it. 
right? But you know as well as I do as, as humans, mm-hmm. unless we see it and unless it actually affects us, most of the time people don't care. Yeah. So uh, there's two things that really uh, that really interest me. Is okay. So I grew up watching National Geographic's, and and you know every what caught my interest was uh, every week they would go somewhere different, and there'd be a new animal or, or or ecosystem that they would focus on. Maybe it was the ocean, maybe it was the desert, whatever. And you you get to learn uh, like how fragile, but at the same time, um, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for is, but like resilient, resilient. Yes, perfect word. The whitetail can live anywhere. The coyote, it lives everywhere, you know. So what where do you stand? I mean, from from uh, uh let's just say a tree hugger standpoint, people who love the outdoors, people who love the nature. Um talk to us a little bit about how fragile the environment is and how resilient it is kind of at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, it's a lot to unpack there. So it, definitely fragile. You know, if you're talking about water quality, I mean, you can have devastating impacts within a much shorter time. Okay. If you're talking about, you know, urbanization, you know, fragmentation of, you know, timber stands and forested areas and for whatever reason, right, clear cutting a forest for, you know, whatever needs that we need as a human species, Um everything will bounce back. It just depends on how long and, and, you know, what's going on. So water quality, we can fix the water quality issue. I mean, it's going to be hard (laughs) because it's going to cause a lot of changes on the landscape that Mm -hmm. most people are not ready to do. And and with changes comes increased spending. And in today's society that that's met with a lot of resistance. Mm -hmm. Um, You look at what's going on with the plastics in the ocean and things like that. I'm not an expert in that, but I think anybody with a brain on their head, common sense knows that's not a good thing, right? Right. Water is a finite resource. Now, if you're clear cutting a a timber stand, right, you can accomplish the goal and get the needs of, of whatever the product from that resource that you're trying to acquire. You can also reestablish that. Yeah. Right. So you can, you, you can't, magically grow new oceans right so it's more finite more fragile you know i would say in my opinion than going in and having a timber stand area that was completely you know clear cut and and you know devastated mm-hmm. right if you had a magic wand and, and limited resource you know financial you know input things like that you could fix that area we could establish you know in our lifetime we're not going to see a mature you know, back to where that thing was. If you're talking about a really high quality, mature timber stand, whether it's in, you know, portions of different parts of the world or just here in the United States, right? Eventually we can get it to be that again and continue providing what it once did as far as, you know, the resources for whatever species that you're, you're talking about, you know, so they will, they're very resilient in that nature. You know, if you talk about species, right? Species are very resilient. You messaged, you uh, uh, talked about whitetails and coyotes. Yeah, I mean, wildlife in general, listen, they need three things, okay? A lot of people make this management and conservation thing too complicated. Species need three things, four, depending on what book you're talking about, okay? They need, how do I find food, okay, is the first question. How do I avoid becoming food? How do I make a copy of myself? Those are the three primary things that drive all species of of organisms in this world. 
Now, we have a hard time, well, not hard time, but we over anthropomorphize everything because of us as a human species, right? We put everything in human context. But right. if you think about it, for us, we are accomplishing the same thing. The fourth thing is space. Most new textbooks will include the fourth thing is an animal needs, an organism needs space in order to accomplish those three primary things. If you look at us as humans, we do the same thing, right? We work jobs to, to have money, to buy food, to buy home food right shelter yep, yep. right how do you know you you look to you know reproduce you find a, a wife or you know whatever and there it is right so we're accomplishing the same things we just do it in a much more advanced way because we're the most you know advanced species on the planet if we're talking about a white tail it's doing the same thing if we take away their resources right they're going to find resources in other areas right they are going to be forced to move outside of the home range and adapt otherwise they die yeah. right? it's just that simple some will die some will not right and the ones that do not die are more fit therefore are the ones that will reproduce therefore will put their genetic you know input into the population and that population will thrive yeah. you know if an individual is not fit it dies off it doesn't reproduce those genes do not get introduced back into the back into the gene pool Gotcha. All right. So, so talk a little bit about maybe something that you've learned, uh, as your time as a, you know, a environmental scientist slash wildlife biologist, and, and maybe in, in some way, shape or form connect that to you also being a, a hunter. So something I've learned, you want good or bad? Uh, what It doesn't matter. I mean, they're both <laughs> I, necessary to, to talk the, about. The not popular thing that people don't like to hear is that, you know, people are the hardest thing to manage. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's the hardest part of the job because, and I've talked to a lot of people within the, the state agencies and, and managing, let's say, the deer program, the deer population, that's not the hard part. The hard part is managing people. Mm -hmm. Right. With this day and age and social media and all the keyboard warriors and, and just everything that's out there, you know, that's the hardest part. So, you know, going through school, you learn those four things. I learned how genes flow through a population. Right. I learned how, you know, deer acquire food. I learn about edge lines. I learn about early successional habitat, the difference between, you know, broadleaf uh, for non-woody plants versus, you know, brambles like blackberry and mature. You learn the science, right? You learn that part. But what you don't learn is how to manage people. You know, wildlife management and conservation is as much of an art form as it really is a science, mm -hmm. right? And I always equate it kind of to, you know, artists, right? You go, you can really have a, a real keen mastery of how to mix paints and what brush to use and, and everything like that. But if you don't have a steady hand, if you don't have an imagination, you ain't going to paint shit. Yeah. Right. You know, it's not going to be very good. Right. So not only can you be a, a master and that's why, uh, and I've known a lot of researchers that they are just, they're up here. They're so smart. They know everything about every plant, how to grow plants, how to do. But when it comes to actually getting on an excavator, getting on a, a tractor and actually doing the work, they don't that, that's not their thing, which mm -hmm. is fine. You need those people. Right. But in the field, I've learned that that's probably the biggest thing I've learned is that in the beginning, I made a lot of mistakes. Right. You, you try to fit everything into this box that you learn without learning how to deal with and manage people right? Deal with, Hey, I read this article, you know, this is what I want to plant. Okay. Well, let's talk about why I don't think that's the best idea. Mm -hmm. Right. And here's why, because we don't know the context of what that article was written, uh, when it was written, where it was written, 
you know, what the parameters around the rest of the project. Yeah, it's on this area. But what was the other thousand acres around it like? Right. We don't know those things. Right. We're very looking at this at one one point of time. So not to say that, you know, those aren't influential and those aren't beneficial information. They are. But everything needs to be taken into context of your individual property. That's it. And that's where we need to start. We need to start there. So managing the people, their expectations, and what their goals are. Those are the big things that you don't really learn how to do in school. You learn that when you're out in the field dealing with people. Just like, you know, you podcasting, right? I mean, you've been doing this for a while. It's like, okay, I want to start a podcast. I'm learning it now, right? My podcast is young. It's like, okay, how to do it. And you get better. Just like anything, you get better the longer that you do it. It's the same thing managing, you know, wildlife managing, you know, whether it's for a, a utility project, whether it's a landowner, you have to understand the language of the people, the goals of the people, the ultimate, you know, parameters and limitations of that project and be able to navigate that framework because the science is easy. Yeah. You know, if it's just, if it's just, you know, managing, you know, putting in, you know, a five acre, you know, plot of something, whether it's, you know, monocrop agriculture, whether it's management or early successional habitat, that's the easy part. The hard part is the dealing with the people and all the just information that's out there that people have access to. Gotcha. How, you know, we, we live in a world of, like you said, keyboard warriors and social media being the go-to source for for news and information a lot of the times. Um, in in your world, is there a lot of misinformation that gets spread uh, that, that you could talk about? Yeah, you know, I would say with my experience, one of the things I run into a lot because – when you look at environmental consultants, again, you know, in my area, you know, there's not a lot of them that have the wildlife and the habitat background that I do. If the if they do, they don't have all the experience I do on active construction and, and everything like that. So not only the science side, but learning how to implement the rules and regulations during active construction and take that into consideration in the pre-planning stage, Right. So going back, you know, to that is um, uh, managing, you know, everything from there. So going from restoration and, and how to accomplish those things, that, that, that's a big part of it, right? Being able to, to manage that. So having that background and having that understanding of trying to accomplish something that the misinformation that's out there, maybe not, it's not misinformation. It's just they don't know any better, right? Hey, I want you to design this. I'll give you an example. So when we have a project, you have to file a permit with the EPA, a stormwater, an NPDES permit, right? And that permit says that you cannot close that permit until there is a vegetative establishment back from construction at 70% or more. Okay, I'm, I'm massively dumbing this down. Um, so, okay, I can look at there and say, all right, the whole point of, a, of, a, of my client, they want to close that project as fast as they can, Okay. Now, what are they going to plant that right of way with? It's going to be some contractor mix of, you know, fescue and non-native cool season perennials that are in there. And if they do something native, it's going to be annuals more than likely. But, you know, it's not going to it's not going to be the most beneficial thing for wildlife. Right. So they'll come to you and say, hey, I, you know, I want to I want to do this plant. I want to do this planting, this mixture, because ecologically, the stuff that we're doing is not very good. I agree. But however, you've got to get the people 
in your company on board to say, hey, we're going to have to allocate more money to this project, which is mm-hmm. going to lower my profit and loss of that project in the benefit of ecological success, right? Because we have fragmented habitat, I'm going to plant this area in a pollinator habitat that we're going to maintain. Or maybe I'm going to do some other type of wildlife planting that we typically would maybe see in a food plot. But again, that's finite. It's not, you know, they're going to finish this project. It's gone. They're done. Eventually, that area is going to go back to where it's going to have diminished return. It's it's going to go back to become that quote unquote, you know, weedy mess, if you Mm -hmm. will. Right. Maybe that's good weeds. I hate using the word weeds, but for people listening, maybe that's the good, the good weeds. Maybe it's the bad weeds. But no matter what it is, good or bad. No one is coming back with any regular interval to manage that. So you get people that want to accomplish something ecologically, but it's not going to work. And again, they're in an environmental department. That's their, hey, I want to protect the environment. The people who who write the checks don't give a shit. They're they're in project management. I want this closed as soon as I can because I don't want to keep paying these contractors to come back. So it's not so much misinformation. It's just not the right information like it, again if you want to do it that way that's fine yeah you just have to understand that the ultimate the ultimate outcome is that ecologically we haven't really done anything you know on gotcha. those areas if you want to per, if you want to preserve and kind of get back some wildlife benefit well you have to do it this way and then here's the trade-off and yeah. most of the time those trade-offs are financial and it just gets it just gets nicked yeah and that and that's it that in lies where it, it all gets muddy Right. So yep. so the the utility company or the big the, the developer says, oh, look what we've done. We've built, but we also replanted and everything's good now. But the 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 uh, environmental scientist goes, yeah, you did do that, but you've just planted yard grass here and it has yeah. no value to the wildlife. Right. You cut down. Uh, all these, let's just say, um, uh, a pollinator, all these pollinator uh, flowers and, and uh, habitat, and now it's just grass with no pollinators in it, right? So you can, you can say you did something, but you really didn't do anything of actual value. Yeah, most of the time, I would say utility industry is really, really doing, doing really good as far as... Um, innovating the green space right so putting pollinator habitat in right maybe something that was an electrical substation that surrounding it was manicured you know fescue mode looks great right well that costs money right mm-hmm. people have to mow that and things like that so you get guys like me to come in and say hey there are federal programs out there that we can take these three acres I and you. we can put this into a pollinator habitat now you're not mowing it once a week which is gas and manpower and hours and things like that now, there's going to be some management involved, but not nearly if you added it up over the year compared to what you're spending on maintenance with it being a mowed lawn. But now you're getting federal money, grant money that you can put a sign out there. Now you can do this as part of your educational outreach. Now yeah. we can say, OK, here it is. Here's but also providing something ecologically beneficial. Right. Yeah. Solar farms are really, really great at that. Solar farms, a lot of them are doing pollinator habitats. They're doing, you know, more wildlife long term because they know it's going to be long term, you know, things out there. So I would say the utility industry as a whole is doing a very good job of adopting these more ecologically beneficial plantings. Now, what's the motivation behind that? Is it 
you know, because, hey, we legitimately want to give back? Or is it because in some cases it's cheaper? Now, some cases it might not be. You know, but I know areas by me, these big corporations that have a big sign that says, look at my wildlife management area. And yeah. all I see is a, a secondary growth closed canopy system of timber that I can see 300 yards through that has right. no developed understory or anything like that. So for me, I'm like, yeah, you've got your wildlife management for some songbirds, you know, yeah. and some squirrels. But that, that, that's not a wildlife management area. But most people driving by go, oh, look at that. They got to they, they care. Look at how you much know? they care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, th- th- listen, there's always a I- I'm a guy. There's always a light in the dark. You know, there's yeah. always a, a pro and a con you know, type of thing. So but I would say uh, industry wide, my clients and people that I see that I follow on LinkedIn, you know, they are there. They are for whatever the motivation, you know, they are doing a lot as far as putting plantings back good that are more ecologically beneficial okay hunt science um yeah talk to us a little bit about your podcast and what you cover in it yeah so when i started my podcast i i didn't want i mean rightfully so i don't specialize in one thing yeah you know so the the market whether it's good or bad you know is saturated with the outdoor podcast and the whitetail podcast Mm -hmm. and the turkeys and waterfowl i mean species specific and there are other ones that focus on a general array of species just like my show does yeah so for me i knew going out the coming out of the gate i didn't want to focus on one thing Mm -hmm. okay again goes back to you know my dad make yourself as marketable as possible right i want to reach as many people as i can i mean it's the face it's a numbers game right you want to get views you want to get clicks and things like that so if you i mean if you want to do it for me it's fun for me I like doing it. It's not my primary income. It's just something that I enjoy doing. I enjoy talking with people like you and, and researchers and, and from my own information, as well as, you know, I find these people interesting and the fact that they're going to bring some benefit to people that are listening. My, my goal is the hunting public, right? Yeah. The hunting community, right? Is I want to take and, and, and be that bridge between what's going on in the academic world versus you know, and how we can relate that and translate that over to the common hunter mm-hmm. that maybe doesn't know what's going on or like, my God, I am so tired of hearing about soil health. Yeah. What the hell is the deal? Right. Yeah. And talk about that. Now I haven't had very many, again, um, my show is pretty young. You know, I haven't, I, I've got, you know, episodes planned around soils, but nothing released yet, you know, but talking about, okay, here's the deal with how we're going to do and how you should be approaching managing the soils on your property. We're not going to talk about soil chemistry. We're not going to go into talking about all the different chemical names and acid names that are that are produced in the root exudates and how they break down the rock. Just say, hey, listen, you know, the, as an example, you know, how do you know roots exude these exudates that are acids mm-hmm. that break down rocks that ultimately become minerals that put micronutrients back into the soil, right? So, and and just basic information that people can easily obtain and, and say, okay, that makes sense, right? Whether it's, you know, I've had things about turkeys and, and, and whitetails and upland game birds and, you know, talking about habitat, talking about hunting strategies and things like that around the ecology of the species. Because in order to be successful in hunting any particular species, you have to understand its ecology, mm-hmm. right? So it may not be something that you're totally interested in, but, you know, managing timber stands, right? You need to understand how whitetails live in a timber stand, right. right? And you need to manage it according to their natural ecology, not what you read in some book, right? But what's going on, you know, in your area and what are the limiting factors that you need to do? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. 
Well, um, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day today. This was a very insightful episode. Uh, I, I, I learned a, a lot. I, I, uh, you know, back in the day I wanted to become a conservation officer or I wanted to become some kind of somebody working with wildlife. Ultimately, this is where I landed, but, uh, you know, there's people out there doing good work for the wild creatures and the wild places out there. So kudos to you and and uh, thanks for your time, man. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me on, man. Anytime. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Tethered Wasp Vortex Hunt Stand and Woodman's Pal. Uh, please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. Um, please go check out 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org and good vibes, man. I'll end it with this. Oh, huge shout out to Eric. Good vibes in, good vibes out, and we'll talk to you next week.